Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Venture in Winter show with my guest, Maximilian Fleitman from Berlin. He's a social entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur and investor and the co-founder of Wizard Ventures. And today we're going to talk about the state of VC and what's next. And I guess uh, while we are waiting for other people to join us, Max, can you just tell us about Wizard Ventures? Uh, what types of companies do you invest in? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. So um, Wizard Ventures is a new company that we created earlier this year, and it's almost like a um, internet holding company. So what we are trying to do is we buy and build uh, profitable online businesses and bring them all together under one roof. Um, and right now the focus is really on products for founders and investors, but over time we will also expand that to other categories. And this is almost like a result of a lot of the things that I have done in the past. Um, but besides with adventures, uh, I'm still investing a lot as an uh, individual angel. Um, and yeah, happy to also do that throughout the venture in winter. Cool. Uh, can you tell us uh, maybe about a few startups that you've invested in recently or that you're really excited about within your portfolio? Um, yeah, so the last two years have been really, really busy in terms of investing. And I think <laughs> a lot of other people also did a lot of investments in the last two years. So there are a few exciting ones. Um, one of them, it's called SQL. So SQL is an investing um, startup for pro athletes. So helping pro athletes invest into the asset class venture capital and startups. And it's really, really cool because a lot of the pro athletes out there don't have access to this kind of asset class right now. Um, and so we are really, really helping them to diversify their investments. But beside that, I'm also always very, very excited about everything that relates to ad tech. So um, this year I did one investment in Berlin here in a company that's called Junto. And it's like a B2B upskilling startup. So helping companies um, bring their employees to new skills and really teach them new stuff through world-class operators from other companies like N26, Google. And this is all like very tech-enabled and... Um, software supported and that's also a really really cool investment that i did very cool it sounds uh really exciting and so uh let's dive into the agenda for today uh we're of course going to talk a little bit about you and your experience as a founder and investor then we'll go into the current state of vc who's thriving who's diving uh what do investors want now and what should founders do in the current situation and maybe what should they be thinking about doing in 2023. Uh, at the end, we'll have a Q&A, but if anybody's watching us live and has questions about a particular topic, we'll be happy to answer them uh, during the show itself. So I got the chat box from uh, LinkedIn and from YouTube. So please send us in any questions you have, or if you have questions that are not exactly on the topic we're talking about at the moment, just hold them to the end. We'll have time to get to them, hopefully. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Max. I pulled this off your website, maxflight.com, and your three, uh, I guess, features as a, as a person there were founder and entrepreneur, investor and learner and maker. And when I looked at that, my first question was, what does balance look like for you? So how, how do you sort of, uh, distribute your time on a hmm. weekly basis yeah. between these activities? That, that's a really interesting question and the right question to ask because this is the one thing that... ...rolls and balls is uh, what is really, really hard for me because um, over the past, I'm always more tending towards a yes than towards a no especially if someone comes up with a new great idea i'm always okay let's just do it and then i end up with all the different projects at once so i'm trying to uh, be a little bit better about this in 2023 but in terms of um, dividing my time i would say right now i try to spend around 70 to 80 percent of my time as a founder and entrepreneur myself 
Um, I spend around 15% of my time as an investor and the rest is like learning and making. And also learning and making is always part of being an entrepreneur and founder. So with every venture that I did in the past, I was learning so much stuff and it's insane to see this. And I get a ton of energy out of that because I'm always very, very motivated by learning new stuff. And this is one of my personal core values. Awesome. Well, maybe let's put a pin in that. And later when we're talking about the future, you can tell us some of the things you're excited to learn next year. And another uh, money quote I found on your site was, I think a differentiator between a good and a great company is the amount of customer feedback you get. I'm curious, what brought you to this opinion? Was it a particular experience or a series that, that brought this to you? Yeah, so I think this is something that I wrote a few years back and now I would add something to that and especially around like, it's not only about the amount of customer feedback you get, but also what you do with that. Um, so I think this is really, really interesting because especially for people like me who are very product focused, um, there's one huge risk in creating a company. So I obviously love to build a product and I can envision a product myself. It looks very beautiful. Uh, it has nice features, but in the end, if no one uses and buys my product, it's worthless. And over the past 10 years, I have made this mistake over and over again that I created a product and it was fun to do that, but I never found the right distribution for that. And often it was also the problem that uh, I wasn't really sure what the customer wanted to have in the product. So it was just my assumptions inside the product, but not like the actual customer feedback that was driving the product. And if I'm now creating a new company, I would do two things. So first of all, I would try to speak as much as possible with my customers and try to really sense what the product should look like and what features we need. And B, the thing that I need to focus on the most is distribution, marketing and sales, because this is, in my opinion, the hard part of being an entrepreneur and founder building a product, you will always get that done. But really bringing it towards the people and telling the world about this, this is what, what matters and what um, differentiates a good from a bad company. Yeah, I totally agree. And I guess the follow-up question I have related to this, since we're talking mainly about VC and fundraising today, is how does that process of gathering customer feedback improve the fundraising prospects for the founder obviously if it improves marketing and sales then by proxy it will improve the metrics for the company but are there any other ways that uh, we can make this connection yeah so uh one example that i always tell the founders in the earliest days is they are always asking me how can i show any kind of traction in a pre-seed round on my slide deck and so they don't have revenue. Um, they don't make, they might don't have like a wait list or something. And then I'm always telling them traction is everything that you have done since the moment that you started to work on this idea. And so traction, in my opinion, can also be talking to customers. So uh, understanding them, understanding their needs, their wishes, and you should never stop doing that over the course of your startup, but especially in the early stages, you can also tell and share the stories of your customers uh, that you interviewed with the potential investors. So I would always try to show the investors that I understood the market and the customer better than anybody else. And really I can um, show that I am able to monetize on this and really build a product on top of this. And I think this is one of the most underestimated ways of showing traction in the earliest days. That's great advice. Thank you. All right. So you've been creating, as you said, you've been creating startups since uh, around 2013, so almost 10 years. Um, and I'm curious with the given uh, the current situation, did, do you think it was bound to happen? Did you see any signs of sort of a bubble? Yeah. So... The first interesting thing here is like I'm 30 years old right now. And since 
uh, I actively started to invest not only in startups, but also in stocks and everything. I think over the last years, it was just going up. And it I think it was one of the easiest periods in time of um, being an investor. So it was really hard to do something wrong in the last 10 years and lose money because everything was going up. And um, I wasn't really aware that there could also be downturns. Um, and um, for me, it, it's now also the first time of experiencing that. But what I've seen from the investor perspective over the last two years, especially was like the rise in valuations and the rise in investment rounds that I saw. So uh, from time to time, I was like um, thinking, how can a startup like this with this kind of traction and, and this kind of business model raise a $5 million pre-seed round or seed round? And um, I was already thinking, okay, there might be something off here if all of the people get money out there. And especially... Um, every single founder was walking around and was raising money because it was so easy. And I think now the time has come that we are getting back to a more yeah, like normal way of investing. And also, A, it's getting harder to, to get funded, but also, B, I think, B, building a profitable business that can actually sustain um, um, yourself is now also a vital option that was off the table for most of the people over the last two years. Interesting. And I guess if we look at a general level, what are some of the factors that are making it harder to raise investments? Or what are some of the factors that are making investors more hesitant to uh, back startups? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the investors that are looking at their portfolio right now they might see some um, like warning signs because they have invested money at valuations that they uh, that will be hard to sustain over the next years. So if I invested in a company at a $50 million valuation, my bet is that at some point the company will be at this kind of valuation. But if the to be at the situation and i think over the over the last two years especially there was this big hype and valuations were uh, ramping up really really quickly and especially also with every single round um and worst investors were paying these high valuations um but now we are moving back to a more normal like valuation level i would say and also on the second side of things um, a lot of investors that I talk to get a little bit of pressure from their limited partners because they are asking now some questions on, okay, why did you invest $10 million in a company that has zero revenue at $100 million valuations one month after starting the company or something? And so the GPs now have to focus a little bit more on actual metrics that can show a sustainable business. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we're going to get into basically all of those topics in a little bit more detail in the upcoming slides. So uh, the first graph we have is the global investments by quarter over the last couple of years. And it looks like we're sort of moved back to 2018, 2019 levels. So as you said, do you think this is uh, more of a return to normal? Uh, was 2021 the abnormal part of this history yeah so um in general i think it's not as bad as everyone is uh, talking about it right now um i think the last two years were um especially huge in terms of like investment volume and also the number of investments and what i've seen over the last two and two or three years was that funds that in the past spent around um, three to five years deploying their capital were deploying their capital in one or two years and were raising a new fund afterwards. But now I think we are moving more back to a way of doing VC investments where you invest in three to five years um, from your fund lifetime and then start to raise a new fund. So just like expanding the span of time in, in which you do the investments for a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. And I wanted to ask you, do you think this um, 
sort of slowdown is affecting all stages relatively equally, or is it hitting later stage companies worse? From from what I can see right now, um, it's especially hitting the later stage companies. So they are having a hard time raising the huge amounts at the big valuations. Um, so a lot of like the later stage uh, investors try to work even more with liquidation preferences at the moment and trying to get a little bit of a security net or like um, return on investment kicker through that. If I look at the early stage deals, um, I see still um, a lot of deals that are, um, that, that are done um, from the VCs, but also especially from the angel community. And I think this is something that is also really interesting that I think for a lot of businesses that could raise from VCs in the past two years, in the earlier stages, they are no, now focusing more on angel investors. And I think the general like angel investing will uh, ramp up quicker um, right now and take a little bit of the portion that was from, deployed from the VCs over the last two or three years. Yeah, let's uh, dig into that a little bit. What do you see as an advantage for, I guess, for the startup founders uh, taking from an angel investor versus going the traditional early stage VC route? Um, yeah, so in general, I don't think it's because it's an advantage right now that they are raising more from angels, but it's more in a way that um, they can't get a proper VC round done right now. So they have to take some more angels on board. But in general, I am a big fan of angel rounds, especially if you're doing like a pre-seed round, because um, with angels, you can test a little bit more in terms of your business model and also the things that you are doing, because angels are investing their own money. And that means they don't have a signaling risk for the next round. If I'm already taking on VC investors in my pre-seed round, um, and they are not doing their pro rata or investing again in a seed round. Every other VC that would like to invest will ask himself, uh, why are, aren't they investing? They still have so much money in their fund. So where's the red flag here? And this is always a risk that I tell founders about if they already start raising from VCs from day one. So um, might be an option to also just do the angel round before that. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, are there any differences in regards to regions that you operate in, um, EU versus ES, US versus uh, any other global uh, regions you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so the statistics that I've seen uh, show that the decline in Europe is way quicker than the decline in the US in terms of deals and deal volume. And I think this is just the case because from my perspective, US investors have always been a little bit more risk-taking. So they were always investing in more riskier businesses, businesses without revenue or anything. And so I think this is just natural that they still are doing more deals and riskier deals uh, with worse metrics than the counterparts in, in Europe. And for example, especially in Germany, I think the um, a lot of investors are very like risk-averse. All right, that makes sense, I guess. Um, let's move on to uh, alternative forms of investments. We've already talked about angels a little bit, uh, but as VC investments sort of constrict, are there other types of funding that are filling the gap? Yeah, so the best form of funding, in my perspective, is customer revenue. And I think we lost a little bit of that over the last few years because raising money was so easy and uh, everyone was doing it. And so you had this like big check in your bank and you could just spend it without focusing on actually generating revenue. I think it's healthy that we are moving back towards uh, um, a system where you are actually focusing on the user, creating value for them and getting revenue from them to fund your business. But that said, um, doesn't mean that you don't need any kind of external investment to get your business off the ground so a i see like more active uh, angels that will fund a little bit of the gap um but also b and this is very interesting uh, some new forms of investment come come up over the last years like revenue-based financing for example and can also fill some of the gaps that we have seen in the past so instead of giving equity to investors you can now 
um, yeah, do revenue-based financing, sell a little bit of your revenue and get like um, some investment right now that you can spend on future growth. Yeah, and I guess this is a good place to talk about like sort of bootstrapping. And also I had a, a follow-up question about crowdfunding. There's sort of different ways for startups to gather early rounds, smaller rounds from directly from retail investors, depending on the region. Uh, I'm not sure if it's available very much in Germany, but I know it's a thing in the US now. Um, and I've heard certain people say that if you go down that route or if you decide to bootstrap uh, your business, then later it will be harder. VCs won't want to invest in those businesses. Is that accurate or do you agree with that? Well, first of all, I'm a big fan of crowdfunding or crowd investing. And I'm also a big fan of having a lot of supporters on your cap table, also in terms of angels. So I think historically, there was always this very negative stigma towards crowdfunding because in the past, there were a lot of like regulation issues where you couldn't like properly pool together the small check investors and um, they were giving like later stage investors a hard time, but also the founders a hard time managing the company. I think a lot of this is fixed right now through new regulations. And now, especially in the US, I see some of the platforms um, that are really facilitating crowd investing as um, not like an alternative to VC investing, but as an add-on. So let's, ima let's imagine I have a company, I don't know, a quick quick delivery company. Um, I don't know, get here, gorillas, however, and I'm opening up a new round. And now I'm inviting my community to invest. I think this is a brilliant way because if I can um, have some of these people investing in my company, they will be almost like locked up to my brand and they will never order again with the competition. And so for me, I would love to open up my round or a portion of the round to these kind of like retail investors. And I can still raise money from VCs, but I have like this huge connection towards the people that are invested in my company. And this can work a uh, very good on the B2C side, but I've also seen some examples uh, from the B2B side where you can almost use your uh, investors, like your retail investors as a marketing channel because they will for sure will tell everyone inside the company, but also their friends about your product because they are a proud investor. And um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah, it's exciting. And it's just, I mean, it's a great way to get sort of that flywheel of growth growing. And it reminds me, I, I started out uh, a couple of years ago working marketing in a crypto startup during the ICO boom. So it has parallels to that. And you know, that energy of getting crowdfunding through your community is, is very electrifying, yeah. I guess. But, but, yeah, but just a small side note on that. So this was my perspective as a, as a founder. I still think in terms of um, retail investors investing in startups as, as a very risky asset class, I think we still need to do a lot of education about that because uh, for me as an angel, I learned over time that I can only properly invest into startups if I diversify my, my portfolio and have at least, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 portfolio companies. And I still, uh, and I was also think that the retail investor needs to understand that so that no one just puts all of their uh, savings into one startup and thinks, okay, now I will become rich or something. And so I think uh, it's still missing a little bit of the education part, but hopefully we will get there over the next, I don't know, five to 10 years. And what I can see in the US already is that also tier one VCs um, think now quite positively about crowd investing and are happy to share a portion of their allocation um, towards the community because they see this like big lever of also decreasing marketing costs to acquire new customer or retain customers. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. Uh, I guess we already touched on a couple of positive aspects of this, but what do you think about the quote there? This may in fact be healthy for the startup eco ecosystem. Are there any other possible positive outcomes that could come from this slowdown? Yeah, one. I agree 100% because in the end, 
every business out there should be sustainable at some point and make profits. And it's okay if you are not making profits from day one and you are investing to get the profits in the future. But in my opinion, it doesn't make sense to uh, put millions and millions of dollars into ventures that can never be profitable in the future. And this is what we have seen over the last few years in some cases. So I think if you are focusing a little bit more on your unit economics from day one, this will be very, very healthy for the future. All right. We've already discussed some of the alternative funding strategies, so we can move on to who's thriving or diving. Uh, now, this chart is focused on Europe, and it's on VC activity over the past on a yearly basis. So actually, it doesn't look that bad, right? Um, it's still well above 2020. It's down from 2021. Uh, can you give us sort of an on-the-ground uh, snapshot? What's the mood in, in Berlin and the EU market? Yeah, so in general, I think over the last year, there were a lot of like negative, uh, negative thoughts out there, fears, and I can totally understand that. But from what I'm seeing, it's not that bad, to be honest. And the decline that we are seeing here, I think the reason for that is also uh, like has two, two reasons. So one of them is um, VC investors, and they have more dry powder than ever inside their funds, are just slowing down with their investments because they want to observe the new normal and adapt to the new normal. So if we see a decline here, it doesn't mean that they are not investing anymore, but they are maybe like moving from an investment period of two years or three years to five years. And this is normal that it's now uh, flattening a little bit. And the second thing is, um, if you think about the LPs in VC funds. So I don't know, the big pension funds uh, are investing hundreds of millions of dollars into a VC as an asset class. And they have these kind of um, ideas about their own asset um, allocation. So let's imagine uh, we have 1 billion to deploy and we say we want to um, invest 10% out of that into venture capital as an asset class. So 100 million. And on the other side, we are also investing in the public markets. Now, what we have seen over the last year was that the public markets were declining. And so also the value of the position of the LPs was declining quite quickly. And now they were overexposed in the VC as an asset class because the VC as an asset class wasn't adapting as quickly in terms of valuations as the public markets. And now the LPs were calling the GPs and said, hey, um, it's better if you slow down a little bit on investing or don't call the next capital out of our uh, committed capital. Uh, and I, I think this is just like a normal adaption phase. All right. Well, thanks. That that spread, uh, shines a little bit of light on what's happening behind the scenes and what's leading to this. All right. So uh, next up, we have a chart about how hard it is to raise funds. And it was a survey of founders in Europe and 82% say that it was harder this year to raise funds from VC than last year. And I guess we've already touched on this a little bit, but uh, maybe 2021 was abnormally easy. And from your experience, in what ways has fundraising, has the fundraising process become harder for founders? Is it a yeah. matter of taking longer, needing to talk to more funds? Yeah, so uh, I think 2021 was abnormally easy, almost like a walk in the park for a lot of founders out there because there was so much money that needed to be deployed. Um, so I would agree on that. And for what I'm seeing right now, good founders will and good ideas will ever get, will always get enough capital for their ventures. I think in general now you have to adapt your storyline a little bit and also focus more on actual numbers instead of the big vision or the story that you are telling. So maybe in two years ago you could tell about uh, how you will change the world, but now it's more like what is the plan to do that and the, the next steps that you are taking. Um, and so I would suggest every founder who's fundraising at the moment to focus a little bit more on that. And then in the end, 
um, less investors are investing at the moment, I guess. So uh, I think it is a good idea to talk to more investors in your fundraising process. So instead of, I don't know, talking to 30 investors, maybe talk to 50 or 60 investors and you will still get a positive outcome. All right. And I guess as an investor, if you had a founder in your portfolio whose startup had already raised uh, pre-seed, but now they're in a situation where they're looking to raise their seed round, what kind of advice would you give them for getting it through this harder, longer process? Yeah. First of all, I would encourage them to expand their runway as quickly as possible because we will we don't want to get into a situation ever where you are running out of cash and need to fundraise really, really quickly. So maybe you had a runway of 10 months left. I would um, encourage the founder to, I don't know, cut a little bit of costs and expand the runway to 18 months so that we have enough time to do a proper fundraise. And even if the metrics or numbers are not good enough yet, we still have a few months left to work on them, improve them, and then raise the funding. But um, giving us time is the first and most important factor. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Uh, do you think that there are any particular industries or segments who will do well in this downturn or will thrive in 2023? Do you have a crystal ball? Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I wish. I wish. So in general, I think uh in every kind of area or sector there are businesses with a great business model that really solve a customer a customer's problem and they will obviously thrive throughout 2023 and will also have huge opportunities in terms of just thinking about add-on acquisitions for example so i think there are huge opportunities on buying together some of the competitors that are running out of cash um i think segments that are quite hard right now uh, everything that relates to e-commerce um, and D2C because A, they were booming through COVID and really scaling up everything in terms of their internal teams, um, but also marketing and everything. And now uh, after COVID, no one wants to shop online anymore or not as much as before. And B, with the like whole economic situation, most of the people are focusing more on holding their cash together and are not like spending hundreds of bucks every weekend on any kind of like Instagram sale or D2C sale. So I think they uh, D2C will be quite hard over the next uh, one or two years. Yeah, I was thinking uh, just about success stories from, from just recent past. And a lot of the consumer apps have blown up uh, just recently, like Lenza AI with the avatars, uh, Gas App in the US, uh, Be Real. Uh, is So obviously there's, I guess, consumer interest in great new toys. These are basically mostly toy <laughs> yeah. apps. Uh, so I think, but is there anything that they're getting particularly right about the market conditions? My guess around this would be that like there are so many negative headlines at the moment and people trying to find a way out. So more like psychologically. And if they can have this like nice avatar of themselves or playing around with their phone, this is a way out for them from their like actual life that is happening out there with like rising energy costs, a war in Ukraine and all of the stuff that's going on. And I think this is why uh, these apps are booming so, so quickly right now. Uh, I guess while we're on the topic, we, we would be remiss to sort of gloss over the generative AI space, which is so hot. Uh, do you have any super interest in that? Do you see any great product potential in general in, in this? Uh, yeah, so I, I think as, as everyone else, I was playing around uh, with the chat GPT over the last week and I was like, I think it's crazy how far advanced the technology is right now and it will have like massive implications for a lot of industries so just thinking about education so if i'm a school school kid right now and i need to do my homework i can just go to chat gpt type in uh, please write an essay about some certain topic and then in like one minute or something i have like my homework done so i think a lot of industries need to adapt and think about 
how does the future look like? So for example, maybe a school or education is more about how, how you can actually use these kind of technologies in the future. But also on the other hand, um, I see a lot of like business models that can be built on top of these technologies. And if you are really, really quick right, right now, I think you can have some easy wins, but also uh, there are a lot of like risks that come with a new technology. Um, and this can be risked from a like um, perspective about what bad things can be done with this kind of AI, like, I don't know, generate deep fakes uh, of, of people or something. But also uh, if I'm thinking about um, search engine optimization and content from a, a founder perspective. So right now we are creating a lot of the content with our own hands and our own head, but you can easily generate a blog post right now that is as, at least as good as the thing that I wrote in a number of seconds. And my question around this would be is how will, for example, Google um, adapt to this? So will they allow a content that is AI generated or will they um, try to find certain things inside the content that makes them, ah, okay, this is uh, automatically generated and then drop it out of the search index? So a lot of different factors here. Yeah, for sure. And I think I think that goes back to your storytelling uh, that you mentioned earlier. You know, the AI can produce information, but it doesn't act exactly have the depth of perspective. So I, I don't know. As a content creator, I think that's where where humans are still excelling. All right, uh, one of your quotes from one of your recent uh, interviews that I watched the other day, you said that I think uh, fundraising takes too much time for most founders, hundreds of meetings, six plus months. In that time, they could create real value for their startup. And my question around this topic is, do you think this process will change or, or speed up in the future? Uh, I think it highly depends on the founder that you are. And I think uh, a lot of founders can be better at fundraising, um, but they have never learned it properly. And it was the same for myself when I was first fundraising. I had no clue what I was doing. But if you actually run a structured process, you can really tighten that up. Um, but there will still be hundreds, thousands of founders that will drag their fundraise over the time of, I don't know, six, nine, 12 months uh, and not really get a proper traction around that. But in this case, I'm always like focusing about like your main priority as a founder is to build a sustainable business and fundraising is just a way that helps you to get that done in the future. It's not the other way around. You are not fundraising and then you are creating a sustainable business. All right. That makes sense. On to the next slide. All right. So what do investors want now from CB Insights? Uh, I was watching a live stream from the Nordic uh, pitch battle it was a couple of weeks ago. And the guy said, VCs are no longer looking for a great idea. The fundamentals of the business are far more important. Real unit economics and growth margins, as you've mentioned already. So uh, is there still value in great ideas? Um, this is a good question. And I think in general, great ideas are overvalued and i think it's more about the execution but it always has been so i think i would always invest rather in a like a triple a team with a mediocre idea than a great idea with a like a mediocre team and i think um from time to time there are great ideas but a lot of them are also like going right into the trash trash bin or something because you can't actually get that off the ground all right. And I guess what are some of the uh, metrics that you pay particular attention to as an investor or as an angel, or if you're consulting with a startup founder giving a pitch? Yeah. So um, what really interests me is the whole like chain of, uh, of uh, flow of, of cash. So how much money are we spending to acquire a customer? Uh, how much uh, um, can we sell our products for and what is like the margin that we are taking out of that. And if this is like a very positive, um, if the margin is positive and we earn money on everything we sell, this can be a really, really good business. But if we are losing money on everything that we sell, uh, I might try to optimize that first. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess uh, you, you've written a lot and you have videos about how to make a great pitch deck. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of them. What are some of the metrics or important points that founders often forget in their pitch deck that you see, that you tell them to put in? Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the most important me metrics for every kind of business is like retention. So showing that every customer that you acquire and win for your business stays with you. So this can either be like in a way of like showing a retention metric in percentage or something on how often they come back, for example, with e-commerce. Or if I look at a SaaS business, it would be like the churn metric that shows how many of the clients are dropping out. Because there's one thing that I don't want to have, and this is a leaking bucket, um, where I put in new customers every single month and a lot of them are dropping out on, on the floor for the ones that I already had. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, uh, moving on to uh, things that investors love. Uh, in Europe, apparently, it is purpose-driven tech companies. And I guess, could you just uh, give us a high-level definition? What is a perfect purpose-driven startup? Yeah, so in general, I would say there is no official definition of that, and everyone defines it a little bit different. I think right now, if people talk about purpose-driven, they are more thinking also about like climate tech and things like that. For me, personally, I think every company needs some kind of higher purpose. So a company is never about like earning money, but a company is always about solving any kind of problem and the problem is always related towards uh to the purpose of, of the company so the purpose could be about the value that you are creating for a customer that is uh, buying from your company and so i find this information or like this kind of statement quite difficult to be honest uh, because uh, I think like 51% is still quite low if I think about the, uh, the the general like purpose discussion. And I am always asking the founders that I invest in what's the purpose of you personally, but also what's the purpose of the company? Yeah, I guess. Uh, are there any other factors for purpose-driven startups that make them so appealing for early stage investors? I think in general, a lot of like new funds are raised, especially around like climate tech, uh, as, as I said earlier, and there are a huge amount of problems that we as a society and we as humans need to fix. And now is the time to do it. And I think we're getting more and more awareness about that. And so this is why a lot of these uh, new startups are getting so much traction, but are also attracting a lot of capital. Right. And I guess not to be too cynical about it, but I, I feel like in, in some cases, as you said, this could just boil down to brand positioning. Um, you know, I'm doing something good, therefore I have a purpose-driven startup. Um, how do you sort of suss out uh, when looking at founders, whether that's actually true or not? Yeah. So for me, this the personal story of the founder is really, really interesting. And I want to get a sense on how they came up with the idea for a company and what their personal motivation is also. So I made the mistake also with uh, one of my previous companies. When we were starting out, we were never thinking about our own purpose, our own values and the company's company values at first as co-founders. And we were just going from step to step to step and realized, I don't know, a few years in the process, oh, we are not aligned anymore in the things that we are doing. And then we sat down and talked about all of these things and realized, okay, this is what causes a lot of the issues inside of our company. And now I would always start with that first if I create a company or also a company that I invest in, really be uh, understand how everyone in the company ticks and what drives them. And if you can get that done in a proper way and everyone ticks in the same way and has the same shared purpose, the same shared values, then you see how like powerful this is and how quickly you can scale as an organization or as a group of people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, so let's, that's also good advice for founders. So we're moving on to what should founders do in the current situation? 
Uh, we've already mentioned uh, about traction and metrics instead of ideas. This is from Founder Institute. Uh, do founders have to think differently now about prioritizing traction? Yes. So as I said earlier, in, in the past uh, three years, it was more about telling a story and creating the fear of missing out. <laughs> and now it's about like creating actual numbers and showing that to the investors. Right. And I guess looking at this chart, they, they've got on their website um, certain buckets for each stage, uh, metrics uh, and traction that startups should have. Is there a particular stage where it's sort of harder to make that next step up given the current situation? Or does it just I think, depend? Yeah, I think like the, the earlier stage precede and seed, it's still something where you with your personality as a founder can convince a lot of investors, but especially the step from seed to series A now becomes a little bit more difficult because if you don't have paying customers, if you don't have uh, good retention numbers, uh, your customer acquisition isn't working out, you will have a hard time finding someone uh, who takes the bet on you as a, as a company and you as a founder. Makes sense. All right, let's see, what haven't we covered yet? Um, we already talked about sort of how it's taking longer and harder to, longer and harder to raise funds. Uh, can you share some practical advice, maybe something that you've told founders that you work with lately uh, that you haven't mentioned yet? Is there any other practical advice you'd give to founders who are trying to raise? Yeah, yeah. so what I would do is I would separate the preparation phase from the app actual fundraising phase. I see a lot of founders who are starting their fundraise without being prepared. So I would focus really, really much uh, on creating a long list of investors, researching them, creating all of the materials like data room, pitch deck and everything, and spend quite some time on that. I don't know, a few weeks. And then go out and be very specific about, okay, now we are raising, we are talking to a lot of investors at the same time. So really trying to um, put all of the meetings in a like very, very short time frame in bulk. Um, and then really creating this kind of momentum. Because if you are talking to some investors here, to some investors there, and it drags over time, you will never get this kind of momentum. And then you will have a hard time raise a proper round. Right. And you mentioned earlier that a high priority should be placed on extending runway. Do you think it's wise to wait until better days to try and raise that next round if they have the money to, to do that? Or do you think it's sort of an opaque process? It might get worse for longer than we think before it gets better. What do you think? I would... I would say I would look at the numbers that I'm producing. So how huge is my confidence that I can improve my numbers over the next month or or not? And if I'm if I'm having good numbers, I can go out and raise anytime. Uh, if I don't have good numbers, I might wait a little bit and try to optimize them with the risk of then having like a shorter amount of time to actually um, close the round. Right. And are there any things that you're looking at that might signal sort of a rate of a rise in funding or, or an upturn in the general markets? Um, I think it's too early to say that, but just like from a consumer perspective. So I'm reading announcement messages of new funds every single day on LinkedIn, Crunchbase, TechCrunch, however. So I have the feeling that still everything is going into a, a good direction and there's still uh, enough money to uh, get for good founders. All right. So we mentioned this already, but there is a lot of dry powder. Uh, this figure is from the, goes up to 2021, but given the slowdown in actual investments, there's still a lot that hasn't been spent. Um, have you helped any founders that have raised recently? And were there any sort of clear strategies that you haven't mentioned yet that helped them win that next round? Uh, a lot of the stuff that I said earlier still applies. And uh, I've helped a lot of founders recently. I've also invested in, in the last weeks in, in recent rounds. So uh, I think it is possible 
uh, to do it and no worries uh, about that at all. Um, just the thing to understand is also the VCs out there, they are they still have to do their job. They are not sitting around waiting for anything. So they are still looking at deals. I think they are only like trying to adapt a little bit to the new normal and might be a little bit more strict about their assessment, but they are not quitting their job from one day to the other. So reach out to them, talk to them, and also trying to get a clear assessment from them um, about like, what do you expect for a company in my stage? What should the numbers look like um, that you say, okay, this is something that goes into my top percent, top 10% of deals that I see. And you can also, you can also do that with your uh, peers or your fellows. So if you have like some friends who also run a SaaS company, ask them, okay, what were your ex investors expecting in your round? And then you can have like almost like a little sheet and self-assess yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, we've already covered most of these, but I guess uh, what are some of the lessons that you take from the 21, 22 boom sort of bust cycle that we've just been through? Um, so for me, from an inverse investor perspective, I'm taking a little bit with me that I don't want to be motivated so much by the fear of missing out. So I personally, I think I invested in some of the deals just because the deals were moving so quickly and so many people were jumping on board. And I want to be more strict about my own um, assessment, but also the deals that I invest in from a certain valuation perspective. Um, and I think founders especially can take also something from, from the boom and bust cycle. Um, it's not always about optimizing the valuation of your company because in the end if you have raised too much money at a valuation that was too high you have now these like huge waterfalls these huge liquidation preferences and you might end up with no money at all even if you have an exit so might be like might be the better option sometimes to raise less capital or no capital at all and uh, sell at a lower price but you personally have like a bigger uh bigger result out of that than raising like huge amounts. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess uh, this is a bit off topic, but in terms of the opportunities that this sort of downturn brings, uh, there are a lot of people having to leave larger companies, later stage, big tech companies. They're, they're very smart people. Um, and one person that I was uh, watching said that uh, a lot of these big late stage companies are dealing with cash flow issues. They're dealing with layoffs. They're they're not really um, focusing quite a hundred percent on innovation, and that's an opportunity for smaller teams to sort of come in and take some market share. Do you agree with that assessment? Um, yeah, I think um, the the market creates some new opportunities as you can uh, already see right now. I think last week the deal was announced that Gettier is buying gorillas, for example. So in some or another thing that is happening right now with all the uh, Amazon FBA aggregators, they are all like bundling together right now. And um, this creates a the opportunity for some of the players that still have a good balance sheet and some cash left to buy at quite low valuations in terms of their competition, but also there will be a ton of businesses that will like bust. And now there are a lot of customers standing around that still have the problem. And now if you are creating a new company and you don't have all these like uh, depths left, uh, you can start fresh and really um, get running. All right. Um, what is one thing that you used to believe very strongly that you've recently changed your mind about regarding startups or VC? Mm. So I think I don't have a clear answer for that, but what I realized over the last three years is that for a lot of ventures out there, staying bootstrapped is a better option uh, than raising money from investors. Because let's just do a quick example. If you are bootstrapping a company, you are the solo founder um, and you are bootstrapping it to, let's say, 1 million in ARR. 
Um, at the current valuations, you might sell, you, you can sell the company at, I don't know, three or four X to your ARR, so three or four million. And that's also made possible because we have new marketplaces out there like MicroAcquire where you can sell small businesses. So three to four million is a life-changing exit for yourself as a founder. But if you are raising money uh, for the same kind of company and now you raised a million, two million, three million, five million, how much bigger do you have to create this kind of like exit to get the same result into your own pocket? And I think the exit must be, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 million or something. And so the likelihood of getting that done is way, way lower than creating a million dollar ARR business. So I always tell the founders, if you are thinking about raising, also think if raising at all is the right thing to do or if there are other like options out there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess it used to, my impression is it used to get sort of a bad rap. You know, people would call them like lifestyle businesses in the US. Um, but it's proving to work for a lot of solo founders and independent uh, company owners. So those are all my questions I have for you about VC and startups and the situation right now. So you produce a ton of great content. I just wanted to give you a chance to plug some of your channels. You have on Twitter and YouTube at Max Flight. Uh, a lot of your YouTube content is uh, around Notion databases and useful things for founders and angel investors. Uh, what do you love so much about Notion? I got to ask. <laughs> so um, I think Notion is one of the tools that came up over the last years that changed the whole industry because it made creating like almost like internal tools or processes so much easier. And um, I think the content on YouTube, there are quite a few videos on Notion because I was sharing or giving a whole walkthrough on some of the stuff that I created. So I was just sitting down building stuff for myself and I thought, okay, I plug in my microphone and here we go. And I record it because it might be interesting for some of the people. And this is what I do with all of this, all of the things. So I'm just sharing my experiences my learnings and I want to inspire the next generation of, of entrepreneurs and like save them from some of the mistakes that I did in the past. For sure. And I guess uh, the only other follow-up question would be um, you, you create a lot of useful things for uh, base templates. People can check out the templates for startups. Uh, do you have anything cool info products or other products in the pipeline for 2023 that you want to, you're excited about? Yeah, there's, there's a ton of stuff that is uh, coming up. Um, right now, we are working on a product that we are releasing, I think, next week that helps um, startup founders find the right investors because I still think the research process is quite annoying um, and really, really hard to create your long list. So we are creating a new and easier way compared to, I don't know, using other platforms out there that you pay a big buck for and making it really accessible for everyone. Because I believe in terms of fundraising, this is a thing that most of the people underestimate proper preparation for that and also creating a proper long list of people as you would do for your own sales process inside your company. Awesome. Well, follow Max. Keep an eye on basetemplates.co if you're interested in all those cool products that will be coming up. And that brings us to the end of the show. If you have any questions, uh, shoot them into the chat. I don't see any that popped up during our conversation, but we'll give it a quick minute just to see. Max, thanks so much for sharing your time. And uh, it's been- Thank you so much. This was uh, huge fun. Also yeah. thinking about a lot of these recent trends in the venture industry, if you are in it, uh, like 24 seven, you miss out on some of the stuff that you showed here. And this is really, really interesting. And I still believe like um, the entrepreneurs and founders that are out there, they are really driving the change in our um, economy, in our society. And these are like one of the, like the boldest people uh, out there. And I'm trying everything to support them. And I think um, if you are out there building something, keep on doing that because it's really, really cool. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, thanks so much. Uh, we'll wrap up here in a second, but I did just want to give a plug for our next event. We'll be early next year, late January, early February. February. I'm going to be hosting a roundtable with some product managers and also investors where we'll talk more in depth about product metrics that investors like to see. So keep an eye on Parallax Socials for that. And once again, Max, thank you for your time. Thanks. Have a good time.